Horses of a Different Color by Ralph Moody, University of Nebraska Press, 1968, Chapter 21, Ready for Business. Thank you, God, for keeping our house dry and warm amidst of freezing temperatures. It's a delight to be with family and, and to enjoy the fellowship. And so I ask you to watch over everyone as they are scattered around our country and the UK and direct their steps to uh, be wise to, to operate safely and well in the, in the winter temperatures and climate. And we thank you that we have um, the joy of reading this chapter, and I pray that we'd have fun with it. In Jesus' name, amen. Until twilight deepened, I stood watching the hogs at their contented rooting. Then a lamp was lighted at the house, so I went in to cook supper. When I opened the door, Nick sat hunched over the kitchen table, so absorbed in what he was doing that he didn't hear me. He still hadn't heard me when I came close enough to see over his shoulder, and I couldn't have been more surprised if I'd found him dissecting a cadaver. He'd turned the oilcloth over and completely covered the white underside with drawings. They were so clear and detailed as to leave no doubt that he'd understood every word I told him about my plans, or that he'd improved on them tremendously. I should have known that his apprenticeship to a building contractor in Greece included training in layout and drafting, but it had never occurred to me. Nick's plan showed the bunkhouse converted to a refrigerator with solid concrete foundation and floor, the walls and ceiling thickly insulated and metal lined, the entire loft a heavily beamed ice chamber, a large adjoining, a large door opening into the shop, and another directly into the adjoining slaughterhouse. It also had concrete foundations and floor. The walls were metal sheathed, and at one side there was a sink with hot and cold water lines. An overhead rail extended above the connecting door so that sides of beef or pork could be rolled from the slaughterhouse into the refrigerator without lifting. The drawing showed what was unmistakably the big watering tank from the feedlot, the only one not swept away by the flood <clears throat> to be mounted high above the slaughterhouse. The four great timbers forming the tower also served as corner posts for the building and were undoubtedly those the road crew had used to get the bunkhouse down from the barn roof. On the dooryard side of the building, there was a brick furnace with hot water tank mounted above the firebox and the rendering vat beyond so that fat would not be scorched by too direct heat. <clears throat> Near the brink of the creep, creek, with lines running to it from the shop, refrigerator and slaughterhouse was what looked to be a pit full of broken stones. Nick was so intent on preparing material lists that I studied his drawing for fully ten minutes without attracting his attention. <clears throat> when at last I leaned over his shoulder, pointed to the pit, and asked, what for? He jumped as if he'd been hurt, then seemed lost for English words. After a few moments he told me, for wash-up water, so flies no come around. I would have recognized the Rockfield Pit as a cesspool if I'd had any experience with them, but I hadn't. When I'd lived in cities, the drains were connected to sewers, and on the farms, wastewater was simply thrown out on the ground, with care not to make mud puddle near the back door. Nick's plans would have been fine if we'd been three months, if we had three months before the start of the railroad contract, or if I could afford a whole crew of carpenters, plumbers, masons, teams, and drivers. But for two of us to do any such job in 23 days was impossible, and to hire it done for a four-month business would be reckless extravagance. That's a wonderful set of plans, Nick, I told him, but you and I couldn't come within a mile of building such a layout by the 1st of August. 
I'm afraid we'll have to get along without the concrete floors and hot water system and cesspool and... Nick looked up at me pleadingly, apparently on the verge of tears, and said hesitantly, I work hard, boss. Lots hours. Fast I can. I'd always heard that the sensibilities of any man who had worked on the killing floor of a packing house became so numb that he was incapable of being stirred by emotions. Maybe that's why the shock of Nick's nearly tipping over affected me as it did. I put a hand on his shoulder and told him, Let's stop and get some supper now, Nick, and then I'll try to figure out how much of it we can possibly do. I said it more to comfort him than because I thought there was much we could do beyond my original plans. Then, when I was putting supper on the table, the depot agent in Oberlin phoned that my express shipment had arrived. I knew there'd be more than a wagon load of it, so I'd had to find a couple of haulers, and trying to think who I might get gave me an idea about our building plans. Almost every farmer in Beaver Township was a jack at all trades. The more skillful could handle any work required by Nick's plans, and most of them owed me hog hauling, most of which I'd have no need for. As soon as we'd eaten, I told Nick to go on with his material listing. Then I took another list, another look at the hogs in the pasture and went down onto town for a visit with Effie. I spent nearly an hour telling her about Nick, his training in Greece, and every detail of the plans he'd drawn stressing the hot and cold running water, the sanitary drain lines and cesspool, and the concrete floors. There's a day or two of hog hauling due me from almost every man in this township, I told her. If some of them would as soon haul material or dig ditches and pound nails, I have an idea the whole layout the boy has planned could be built in three weeks. When do you aim to get started on it, she asked. I'd start in the morning if I had a team or two for hauling, I told her. Great Jehoshaphat, Effie exploded. Here it is, half past nine o'clock at night. Why in the wide world didn't you let on what you wanted when you first come in here instead of pussyfooting around like a lovesick lummox till time for all respectable folks to be abed? Now get out of here, skeedaddle, and leave me elbow room to try to get some line calls. Uh, if I rouse anybody, I'll ring you up before I close the switchboard. The moonlit, the moonlight was so bright that when I crossed the railroad track on the way home, I could see hogs still rooting up corn all around my pasture. I climbed the fence and spent maybe half an hour walking around among them, making sure the big sows were, weren't driving the smaller shoats away from corn that had been turned up. When I'd circled the field as far as the scale runway, I became conscious that the phone was ringing my combination, three, two, three, over and over. I sprinted across the dooryard, rushed into the house, and snatched the receiver off the hook, not more than four feet from where sick Nick sat hunched over the kitchen table. I was blowing like a wind-broken nag, and before I could cast my breath enough to speak, Effie shouted, Land sakes alive, where on this green earth have you been at for the last hour? I stopped to see how the hogs were doing, I told her. But it wasn't more than, well, what's the matter with that Italian you was bragging so much about? <laughs> Don't he know enough to answer a phone? Or is he differ in a post? I've been ringing steady for leastways 20 minutes. There was no point in telling her again that Nick was Greek, not Italian, and her voice was so loud that I was afraid he might hear and understand what she was saying. I held the receiver tight against my cheek to muffle her voice, and to cool her down, I said, It's my fault, Effie. I forgot to tell him that 323 was my ring. What odds does that make when a phone's ringing fit to tear itself off the wall? <coughs> she demanded stridently. He ought to have sense enough to take down the receiver and find out what's going on. Everybody else on the line did, on that line did. 
He doesn't speak very good English, I told her, and with everybody here a stranger to him, he's a bit bashful. Bashful? Sounds to me more like he's scared to death of folks. So, that's why there, there didn't nobody see hide nor hair of him when they hauled hogs to your place today? Oh well, it don't make no never minds anyways. What I called for was to tell you you'd have plenty of help in the morning. My lands, it seems like everybody in this township wants to put get a finger into the pie. I didn't bother to set down any names, but told them the more the merrier and not to forget to fetch along the tools. Well, I'd best to ring off now so both of us can get some sleep. I didn't aim to be so cussed ornery when I called, but it sets my blood boiling when I know there's somebody to home and they won't answer. Then she broke the connection before I could thank her for her help. It was past midnight before Nick completed his lists and we translated them into English. Before dawn, we were out with lanterns, taking measurements, and driving stakes to mark the corners of the refrigerator, slaughterhouse, and cesspool, and string up twine marking where ditches were to be dug. By six o'clock, a dozen wagons had rolled into the yard, so I started them. I started three of them with four horse hitches off for Oberlin, telling the drivers I need them there with the material list. I'd meet them there with the material list. This is amazing, isn't it? How I don't know, I can't imagine waking up that early and getting everything marked out before people started showing up. That is such hard work. Okay. Every man had a plow, a scraper, or a box of tools in his wagon, and several had brought along a son or two to help with the work. As I was sure he would be, George Miner was among the first to arrive, though he owed, he owed me no hauling. I asked him to take charge of the cesspool and ditch digging where while I went to Oberlin for materials. Then I set Bill Justice, who was quiet, careful, and a good carpenter, to work with Nick on the foundation forms for the refrigerator and slaughterhouse. Halfway to Oberlin, I passed the three wagons I'd sent ahead, the horses stepping along at a brisk trot. By the time they'd reached town, I'd found and bought all the materials on Nick's list. A few minutes later, after 9 o'clock, the wagons were pulling out for home, heavily loaded with lumber, cement, bricks, an additional 300 feet of drain and water pipe, hardware, other building materials, and the express shipment from Omaha. Between material and hog buying, I drained my trading fund down to almost nothing. So I borrowed $1,000 as soon as the Farmers National opened. Mr. Frickney, Fricky told me that the receiver of the Cedar Bluffs Bank had phoned him of our agreement and of the number of hogs I'd bought. He said they were both pleased and thought I'd make a good investment. When I left the Farmers National, I stopped at the drugstore and bought Effie the biggest box of candy in Oberlin. <laughs> then I went to Bivens' store for 50 pounds of steak and a load of groceries, but I didn't look forward with any great joy to meeting John. He not only knew about my having got the railroad contract, but that I'd have to cut deeply into his farm trade to get rid of my leftovers, and I was afraid he might be sore about it. There were no customers in the store when I got there. John was alone behind the groceries counter, and he didn't look overly cordial when I went in. It seemed to me that the best way to avoid unpleasantness was by coming straight to the point. So I said, As you know, I've bid on the railroad contra meat contract, so I'll have lots of receivers to get rid of, uh, lots of leftovers to get rid of. I aim to go after all the farm trade I can get, but I won't cut prices less than a dime a pound. Anything except byproducts that I can't get that much for, I'll feed back to my hogs. Is that fair enough? <coughs> Bivens looked surprised, stuck his hand across the counter to shake, and told me, Fair enough. What the McCook butchers and I have been scared of was that you'd go to dumping stuff at nickel or less. That, that could come mighty close to putting some of us out of business. But a dime for the 
greatest stuff you'll have left over from that railroad contract is all right. Any butcher that can't stand that kind of competition ought to be out of business. You go right ahead and get all the farm trade you can, and there's none of us will begrudge it to you so long as you don't cut under a dime a pound. I couldn't see any reason for telling him that the meat I'd have left over would be of better grade than most of the McCook butchers were selling their farm trade. So, kept the conversation on something else until he finished putting up my order. He didn't ask what price I'd bid to get the contract, and of course I didn't tell him. A few miles out of town, I passed the heavily laden, loaded wagons, then stopped at Cedar Bluffs only long enough to take the box of candy into Effie. As always, she scolded me for bringing it and said if I didn't quit, I'd have her fatter than any hog in Beaver Township. But she had the top off the box before I could get out of her office. When I got home, I found the whole place a beehive of activity. The hogs were spread out over the entire 40-acre field, rooting deep into the silt, and every one of them was chomping, champing on an ear of corn. The ditches and cesspool pit had been dug. The floor had been removed from the bunkhouse, and forms for the foundations were nearly completed. My neighbors were as used to saw and hammer as to plow and harrow, and when one of them built a new house or barn, the others always pitched in to help. Sometimes a boss carpenter was hired to lay out the framing, but there was never any drawn plans, so mixed oil cloth was a source of amazement. While the potatoes boiled, I explained it to George Miner and Dave Gutenberger, then let them take it outside to show the other men. As I fried steak and sliced bread, I could hear Dave's voice in the dooryard. dooryard. <coughs> Come look at these pictures the Italian boy drawed out of the layout Bud aims to build. That there brick thing? Why, that's the firebox for making hot water. Don't you see the lines running all about where we've been digging ditches this morning? Them's water and drain lines, drain pipes. Yes, sirree, boys, hot and cold, running water all over the place, just like the Brown Palace Hotel up to Denver. Don't reckon I'll let on about this to the old lady, leastways not till I get the mortgage on my place paid off. By quitting time, we laid all the drain and underground water lines, erected the tower, mounted the water tank on it, filled the cesspool pit with limestone and the foundation forms with concrete. On Sunday evening, there was many a cow milked late in Beaver, Town, in Beaver Township. No man would leave the job until the water system had been completed, the heavy carpentry on the refrigerator and slaughterhouse finished, and concrete floors laid. $500 wouldn't have paid for the work my neighbors had done for me in those two days, but no man would take a penny or the cancellation of his hog-hauling obligation. With the start we've, we'd been given, two men could easily have slapped the rest of this job together in three weeks, but Nick didn't slap anything together, and I'd have been ashamed to do it when working with him. Every board had to be planed to a perfect fit, every nail set, and his solder joints looked more like those of a jeweler than a tinsmith. In his drive for perfection, Nick always had me up before daylight, and sometimes he wouldn't quit until nearly midnight. In trying to match his pace and endurance, I found myself constantly running out of steam on my salmon, sauerkraut, and gluten diet bread diet. After four days of nearly starving, I ate a breakfast of half a dozen hot biscuits, a big heap of fried potatoes, a pound of steak, and a pint of coffee with cream and sugar. With a belly full of meat, potatoes, and biscuits, I had no trouble in keeping pace with Nick and abandoned my diet completely. I couldn't help feeling guilty about it, though, so mailed Dr. DeMay a specimen at the end of the week. On Tuesday, I received a postal card from him with only five words on it, good specimen, sugar slightly down. The next morning, I changed our menu a little. We had pancakes with our steak and potatoes instead of hot biscuits. 
For the rest of the summer and fall, there was, that was about as much as our meals ever varied, but I didn't send any more specimens to Dr. DeMay. From the day I'd bought my hogs, the market had been moving up steadily at an average daily rate of about 10 cents a hundred. As mid-July approached, I began avoiding George a bit for fear he'd tell me that if he were in my boots, he'd ship his excess hogs. With the market still going up, I dropped over for a visit with him on the evening of the 20th, but he didn't mention hogs or the market, so I didn't either. On Monday the 25th, the special fixtures arrived from the German machinist. The white butcher's coats and aprons came from Sears Roebuck, and that day's mail bought, brought a letter from Dr. Or Mr. Donovan. He wrote that he'd come to Cedar Bluffs on Friday, the 29th, and that if my facilities passed inspection, I should be prepared to make my initial delivery on the 31st. From then until midnight on the 27th, I was too busy to think about hogs or pay any attention to what the market was doing. By that time, our building job was finished and we were ready to go into the butchering business. Nick had converted the old Maxwell into a dust-tight little delivery truck by cutting away the body from behind the front seat and replacing it with what looked like a large canvas-covered cupboard. We'd lined the refrigerator with galvanized iron sheeting, every joint soldered airtight, um, and I'd had two tons of ice hauled to fill the cribs. We'd given every inch of the house, inside and out, at least one coat of white paint, had screened every door and window, installed all the equipment, and finished up by scrubbing every floor with scalding water and lye soap. Next morning, we slept until 6 o'clock, and right after breakfast, George dropped over. As he came up from the creek, he called out cheerily, don't know if it's the women's folks gossip, but Irene tells me the chief cook and bottle washer for the railroad will be here for inspection tomorrow. Reckon I'd mosey over to see if I could be of any help anywhere along the line. Thursday <clears throat> was the last day I could order cars for shipping hogs on Saturday, so I had an idea that George's visit was an invitation for me to ask his advice about selling, but I didn't want to appear too anxious, so I called back. This time the women made a good guess, but we're as ready for him as I know how to get. Come on inside and take a look at the place. When George saw that we'd scrubbed the floors until they were bleached almost white, he wouldn't step a foot inside without pulling off his boots. As we padded around in our stockings, he reminded me of a little boy at a circus, and when I'd shown him through the workroom, refrigerator, and slaughterhouse, he told me, By jiggers, the Lord must be looking after somebody besides fools and drunkards this season. Elsewise, he'd have led you to, he'd never have led you to that boy Nick. Was I you? I'd be dang careful I didn't lose him till this whole shenanigan was all wound up and over with. Looks to me like you've got a heap of kettles on the fire, and all of them coming to a boil at the same time. Then you think I'd better sell whatever hogs I won't be needing for the railroad contract, I asked. Well, now, he said slowly, I wanted to say you'd better. Nobody could say that without he know if the market was going down, and I don't know that. Don't know at all, as I'd ship this Saturday if I was you. And your age? Hog market is still moving right along, steady at a trotting horse, as a trotting horse, up a dime to 15 cents every day. What would you do if those hogs were yours and you were, and you were your age, I asked. I'd sell them, he said, without a moment's hesitation. Cycle or no cycle, pork's getting mighty high alongside the price of prime beef and veal and chicken. And the bosses of the stockyard auctions are the women folks that buy meat in the butcher shops all over this country. If they switch away from pork, the price can can't help but go down. By Ginger, I'd best to get on home before Irene comes hunting me with a broom handle. But don't you go and ship just because I would, son. You know I'm getting old and cautious. Kind of like an old saddle pony that's been wire cut a few times. 
<coughs> as he started off toward the creek, I called after him. Come over Saturday morning, will you? And bring old Jack along. Jack was the best dog in Beaver Valley for round, rounding up and sorting hogs, so I didn't need to tell George that I was going to ship my excess. He was certainly right about having my having a heap of kettles coming to a boil all at the same time. To have meat chilled firm enough for bandsaw slicing by Saturday, we'd have to butcher right away, but I'd have I'd had no time to buy cattle. Then, too, I'd need hay for them. <clears throat> and the buried corn must be nearly gone after 561 hogs had lived on it for three weeks. Before the day was over, I'd have to order cars, line up 30 wagons for hauling hogs on Saturday, pick up my shipments of spices and stale bread at the McCook's Express office, and buy cattle, hay, corn, and wrapping materials. As soon as George had gone, Nick and I rounded up a couple of the best bacon hogs in the pasture for him to slaughter and dress while I went to get some of the other kettles off the fire. The latest Kansas City radio quotation on top-grade grass-fed heifers was six fifty a hundredweight, making their local value $5. I could well afford to pay that much if most of my beef leftovers could be sold at 15 cents a pound, and I believe they could be if the quality was high. As insurance against a rising market, I decided to buy enough top-grade heifers to fill my contract for at least a month. Since I'd bought a larger part of my hogs from the Valley Farmers, it seemed only fair to give the Divide Farmers first chance to sell the heifers. There was no corn to be had in Beaver Valley, but the tenants on the Divide never had enough stock to clean up their nubbins. They'd make good feed for my pasture hogs, and I could pay the full price in cash because the bank receiver had written off all nubbin piles as worthless. Then, too, the poor of the tenant farmers up there had only a couple or three hogs to sell when I'd be buying, but every one of them had promised to haul a full load to Oberlin when I shipped, and several had come down to help us with the building. Most of the farmers on the divide seemed to feel that I'd done them a favor by not shipping until they'd finished their harvesting, and I had no trouble in finding plenty of hog haulers. If a wheat farmer had a few grass-fed heifers to sell, I looked them over and dickered for any that were of top quality, but held the corn and hay business back for poorer tenants who had no wheat or to harvest and no fat cattle to sell. By noon, I'd bought 27 excellent heifers, 10 tons of good prairie hay, and 50 tons of nubbins. <coughs> From the divide, I drove to Oberlin, ordered cars for Saturday, and bought wrapping paper, twine, and order pads with carbon so I'd be able to keep track of credit sales. I hadn't expected to be in town more than 15 minutes, but so many people wanted to congratulate me on getting the railroad contract or try to pump me about the price I'd bid to get it that I didn't get away for more than an hour. Ah, we learned so much in that chapter. I love you. You guys have a great day.